following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Good morning. Well, I also want to welcome you, especially if you are a visitor this morning. I am not Pastor Steve. My name is Jed. I'm the associate pastor. Pastor Steve will be back next week. Um, so welcome. And if you do have any questions this morning, I'd uh, be more than happy to talk with you after the service and try to answer your questions. So um, for the rest of you, if you see someone today who looks like Pastor Steve, just assume it's not. Just welcome him Treat him as if he's still on vacation, uh, give him a brochure, ask him his name, show him around the building, and uh, just, you know, just assume it's not. It may look just like him, but it's not. Okay. Well, please turn in your Bibles to First uh, Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. Before we go any further, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, High King of heaven, Father, Daddy, we long for your name to be praised this morning. We long for you to make much of the name of your Son this morning. So Holy Spirit, would you come down with power? Would you move among us? Would you take your word? Would you use it to point all of us to Christ? Would you exalt him? Would you magnify him? Oh Lord, grant us integrity in the deepest recesses of our hearts. Purify us, Father. Purify us with your gospel. Unite our hearts to fear your name and to be so grounded in your gospel that it matters little where we are or who we're talking to or what we're doing, but that we would find our feet planted right there in its soil, the soil of the foot of the cross. Take us there this morning. I don't have the power to do this. Holy Spirit, you preach, you move. Magnify the Son, we pray. Amen. Well, I don't think that I will ever forget my friend Bob's funeral. I've mentioned him, I think, maybe even from the pulpit before. He was a mentor to me, but a mentor that, unfortunately, I took for granted. His sudden death changed that, especially his funeral. It stamped on my mind and on my heart the many ways that he had been a faithful example to me. More than anything else, what I remember about Bob, and especially about his funeral was his integrity 
and His faithfulness. These things were, as I said, stamped upon my heart in a way that probably never otherwise would have happened had He been allowed to live. I will never forget it. Bob was not successful by many of the world's standards, but he was faithful and he possessed the very integrity that we will be talking about today. The Thessalonians experienced something very similar. Paul and his fellow missionaries had come to Thessalonica, having already been beaten once for preaching the gospel up the road in Philippi. But they went on down the highway to the next town, having every reason to expect the same result. And yet they boldly preached the gospel of God, and the power of God moved among the Thessalonians, and many were saved. They were beautifully, marvelously saved, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance such that the reputation of their faith sprung out over the entire uh, continent of Macedonia, the subcontinent. An amazing thing. God came down and moved. But... Paul could only spend a short time with his church before uh, he was run out of town again. One day he's there, the faithful pastor with his church. The next day he's gone, and they're left without a leader. In his absence, competitors and persecutors moved in. We know the ancient world was full of traveling philosophers, uh, traveling hucksters, snake oil salesmen, selling gospel competitors. The persecutors, probably Jewish and city authorities, saw the movement as a disruption to their established order. So both of them wanted the gospel out. So, like with modern-day politics, if you want to discredit the message, you discredit the messenger. And that's what they set out to do. News of this comes to Paul, and he writes the letter that we have in front of us today. So in this letter, Paul is desiring to to stamp the integrity of his mission and his message upon their hearts and minds. He wants to to cement it so they will never forget it. For Paul, integrity simply meant faithfulness. Well, faithfulness to what? Well, in chapter 1, it's the power of God. No one is saved and no one is sanctified absent the power of God. No amount of excellent oration does a thing without God's power coming down and moving. For anything else I say today to make any sense, we must understand this. Everything in this letter that Paul will talk about is predicated upon the power of God moving. And God pours His power out through certain kinds of vessels. Faithful men and women. Faithful boys and girls. Well, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it's the goodness of God. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And it was a lot of conflict that they experienced. But... They persevered. God is so good. His gospel is so valuable. He is so for them and He is so sovereign and He is so in charge that it was worth it. It was worth risking another beating. God is that good. His gospel is that powerful, that precious. They were willing to risk everything for it. They were that bold. Well, then in verses 3 through 5, which Pastor Kurt preached well about last time, it's their commissioning by God that they were faithful to. 
Verse 3, Paul writes, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt uh, to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. They were out to please him, to be faithful to his message in order to please the one who sent them. This meant the right gospel, a pure gospel, an honest gospel, all the parts, even the ones about judgment and sin, because God was the one who was evaluating them. God was the one who knew their hearts. So we finally now come to verses 5 through 12. And uh, we will be looking today mostly at verses 7 through 12. But I will start reading again in verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom, into his own kingdom and glory. Paul and his companions were faithful to the gospel's power and message. But now, Paul says, they demonstrated an intense level of gospel integrity. Integrity that was irrefutable. Paul can simply appeal to it as a stamp of authenticity on their gospel ministry. That's the issue for us today. Whether you and I increasingly possess the same irrefutable integrity. It's an integrity that only those who truly possess the gospel and truly understand it have an exercise in their life. So the issue today is very important. Now, a problem of ours, though, is to view this living out the gospel thing as some newfangled church slogan, something Pastor Steve read in a book somewhere. Um, well, he did, actually. It maybe it was called First Thessalonians <laughs> or Romans or Ephesians or First Peter or Revelation. <laughs> it's all through the New Testament. I think we as a church, we, we get that we should be about this gospel-centered business. That's been stated enough. We often say to preach the gospel to ourselves. We talk about it a lot. But I don't know that we often understand how deep the, the should goes here. The issue at hand with Paul and with the Thessalonians and for us is really whether we have this, this foundational integrity. Paul's point here is that integrity for a church or for a person begins and ends with the gospel. 
does not begin with what sins we may or may not commit behind closed doors, although that's undeniably important. Don't hear me say that we should lessen our standards of purity one iota. But understand that our integrity, our standard of faithfulness, begins and ends with our understanding of the gospel and whether or not the gospel actually is displayed in our life and therefore whether Christ himself is displayed in our lives. That is the first and foundational test of our integrity as a church and as Christians. People with new hearts and united minds will undoubtedly manifest this in specific ways if the truth of their transformation has any merit. It's not a matter of if the gospel is caught while it is taught, but how it is caught by other people. So when the gospel of Christ invades a life, it necessarily replicates Christ in that life. So then our big point today is simply this. Integrity as a church and as a Christian means that we not only proclaim Christ, but we also manifest Christ. And we do so regardless of our audience. Regardless of our audience. I'll say say that again. Integrity as a church and as a Christian means that we will not only proclaim Christ, but also manifest Christ, regardless of the audience. So what does this look like? Well, today I want us to see uh, three irrefutable characteristics of gospel integrity. Three irrefutable characteristics of gospel integrity. Three intense characteristics of Christ that, if seen in us, if displayed and manifested in us, put a stamp of authenticity, a stamp of integrity upon our ministry, upon our church, and upon our lives. So let me just say that I so want more of this. I want it for me. I want it for you. I want it for our church. I don't want to be known as the cool church or the knowledgeable church or even the successful church. Or or dare I say, I don't even necessarily want to be known as the faithful church. I simply want my Lord to look at us and say, they look like me. I simply want Him to look at you and me and all of us and say, they look like me. I see myself in them. That's true faithfulness. That is gospel integrity. Okay then, so these three intense characteristics of gospel integrity. The first one is humble gentleness. The humble gentleness of Christ. The humble gentleness of Christ. So what does this gentleness look like? Well, Paul explains that as they shared the gospel with the Thessalonians in their evangelistic ministry, they were gentle with them, like a nursing mother taking care of or cherishing her own children. Now, um, for the men here, this is not where you tune out. (laughs) Um, This is not where a man's masculinity in the church begins to get chipped away. Paul is redefining for us what gentleness looks like just as his Lord did. This is not the gentleness of the world. This is the gentleness of a person who has come face to face with the living Christ. So we need to understand first what Paul means by the word gentle. Well, I can still remember that quiet moment with our children shortly after birth when they fed for the first time. The pain and the effort and the urgency of labor is done 
and everything is very quiet. And Annie is sitting there with our baby, and the baby begins to feed for the first time. And I remember not wanting to come in just yet <laughs> because it was too precious, almost holy <laughs> in that moment. This, this closeness, this utter dependence and uh, tender concern and love that Annie had for her child. That's the picture that Paul is painting here. This is the kind of concern and love that they had for the Thessalonians. This is the gentleness of Christ. Um, but in the days of the early church, mothers actually did not often nurse their own children, strangely enough. They would often hire somebody else out to do this. I'm not sure why, but that's, that's what we know. Um, we've even found archaeologists, not we, but archaeologists, have even found a scrap of papyrus from the time of Christ uh, a letter where a mother or father-in-law actually wrote to someone else that they forbid their daughter-in-law from nursing their own child. Paul says, we didn't treat you like that. We weren't just hired hands. We treated you with the sincere concern of a mother with her own child. So why is this important? Why is this important? Well, our world is not that different today. As you know, there are many people around selling philosophies. We're not selling a philosophy. We're introducing person, people to a living, resurrected person, the living Christ. This is why we cannot settle for only sharing gospel terms as if we're sliding a contract across the table. In sharing our gospel, we are calling another human being to die to everything else and live to a living person. So we must display this living person. And Paul says the, the first way that our, our gospel message and our gospel demonstration come together with integrity is with the gentleness of Christ. So how do we define this word gentle? Well, I think when m many of us think of gentle, we think of softness of speech. Or maybe a function of one's personality. So is it only for the non-type A folks in the room? that this gentleness is available? Um, are the china shop bowls just left out on this one? Is it only reserved for those of us who were born sweet and affable? No. But hear me on this. Both the china shop bowl and the born sweet among us need to hear this definition because it is so easy to fall into this picture of worldly gentleness. And how the world defines the, world, the word gentle is so different than the gentleness of Christ. Worldly gentleness often has to do with pretense or error or impurity. Because in our sin, without the grace and the fear of God, we're all, look with me back at verse 5, we're all flatterers, sweet, affable liars. <laughs> or we put up a veneer of concern for the other person, but we really just see them in terms of our ability to use them to get more whatever more is to me or you. This is the pretext for greed that Paul talks about. Or maybe we just want glory from them. Verse 6. These things don't produce true gentleness, but instead indifference, manipulation, superficiality, hurtful posturing, burdensome counsel, brusque and abrupt behavior. It starts off with a pretense of concern, but results in wreckage and the dropping of anvils instead of lifting them off. 
The core problem is that if we conduct ourselves this way, we show that we are our own messengers, not Christ. But true gentleness is only the trait of the man or woman who has come face to face with the living Christ and his word and being amazed by his humble love to them. True gentleness sees the genuine need of the other person. It knows its own cries of Abba, Daddy, Father. It knows its own need of grace. It knows how much it needed the gentleness of Christ. And it so much wants the other person to receive it. So we sinners, we can get pretty good at hiding our self-seeking behind this veneer of religious gentleness. But in the end, it really just makes us sweet and affable little monsters. We have this veneer of, of wanting to help, but it leaves trails of wreckage and futility behind us. So I call upon all of us today to glory in the humility of Christ, to remember how humbly the Lord Jesus came and saved you, and to glory in this, to consider how awesome it is that Jesus came in the way that he did, giving up his right to equality with the Father, to obey Him and to die for us. He's the only one who could have made demands for glory and He made none. Choosing instead to allow Himself to be led away like a sheep to the slaughter. The template for all our relationships, all our evangelizing must not be something like how to win friends and influence people, but passages like Philippians 2 and Isaiah 53 to simply watch the Lamb and follow in his humble steps. Well, I see this play out in my own life and ministry in counseling or evangelizing situations. If I'm ever brusque or abrupt, if I ever drop an anvil instead of lifting one off, I can pretty well tell you why. It's probably because I'm looking at you or your problem without the lens of the gospel. I'm not sitting at the foot of the cross. Perhaps the condition of your heart reminds me a little too much of the condition of my heart. <laughs> or your sin a little too much like mine. Or perhaps your sin reminds me of none of my own sins and I just have superiority in my heart. And out comes the anvil or the arrow or maybe just indifference. Sharp, heavy, burdensome indifference. But not the gentleness of Christ. But if I'm ever able to embody the gentleness and, and lavish grace of Christ in myself, it is only because He has changed me first, made me new, and I have gone back to where the change occurred, remembered what a sinner I am, and become humbled again by His amazing grace to me. Only then from this stance, from this, this position at the foot of the cross, can I have the humility of Christ. And only then, when I possess this humility of Christ, am I able to reach out to you with the gentleness of Christ. The two always go together. You can't have one without the other. Our vision is so much clearer from this spot, from the foot of the cross. While we see that our outward behaviors might be different, the outward manifestations of our hearts might be different, we realize when we're sitting at the foot of the cross that our hearts are not that different. From the foot of the cross, I can proclaim to you the gospel of God and it won't be like an anvil dropping on your toes 
but a cold cup of water. When I see the infinite gulf that was covered by the love of God at the cross, the difference between me and the sex offender or the murderer down the street is actually not that big. My black heart needed the love of Christ no less than he did. So brothers and sisters, this is this way for all of us. All of us must stand at the foot of the cross. And as we do, it should bring us humble equality with each other. Definitely within the church. But even outside the church with unbelievers. All of us were undeserving of our calling into his kingdom. And all of us have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols. All of us. The only difference between me and an outsider is His amazing grace. That's it. Revel in that. and Let it do its work of humility in you. Let it produce in you the humility of Christ. You so need this. I so need this. So, this humble equality also obliterates the thought that I have to be perfect or that I can't let an unbeliever really see what I look like. On the contrary, it lets me let them see me because I don't, I don't really care about me. I care about showing them what Christ has done in my life. I so much glory in His amazing grace to them that it is a precious treasure that I want to show to whoever I can. So, I don't care if they see the dirty closet over here. I don't care that they see this corner of my life where I'm still growing. Where I desperately again and again need His grace. I don't care. Because where my sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Romans 5. So I can be open. I don't, I don't really care if I'm winsome for Christ. I want to manifest how, just how winsome Christ has been to me. How beautiful and lovely and amazing He has been. So now, I want to speak to the china shop bulls and the uh, born affables one more time among us. If you are gentle and affable by nature, and you find it easy to project an appearance of gentleness, I want to speak to you a moment and say, stop. Stop it. <laughs> I say stop it, and I say determine right now not to build upon your personality. Determine not to build upon your personality, your projection of gentleness. Oh, he's such a sweet person. No. Determine instead to build upon only the amazing grace of your humble Savior. Determine to have any gentleness that you project to be driven by his humility and his lavish gentleness to you. Sit at the foot of the cross. Understand your deep need again for your Savior. Remind yourself of His humble coming to earth and how He came to you. Let your gentleness be determined by your Lord. And if you are a bull and china shops close up for the day as you approach, uh, you probably already know that you should be more gentle. You don't need me to tell you this. Uh, I'm not going to. Maybe you're looking to mimic the affable ones your affable friends, but to you also I say, stop. Let the humble Messiah be your definition of gentleness. Watch his life of lavish grace in the Gospels and let that be your template 
Let his power and his grace propel you to gentleness that looks like him. Don't let anyone else besides your Lord define gentleness for you. So the first characteristic of gospel integrity is this humble gentleness, the humble gentleness of Christ. Do you have it? Are you growing in this? I plead with you. I plead with all of you because we all struggle with this. We all struggle with pride. Go back to the cross and remember what it's for. Be amazed again at his lavish love for you, what he has done for you. Be amazed and be humbled. Well, the second characteristic is the sacrificial affection of Christ. The sacrificial affection of Christ. And by the way, parents, feel free to uh, help your kids draw a picture on that yellow sheet of paper. Of, they're supposed to be drawing little pictures of what, uh, what I'm talking about, and I have no idea how a, a three-year-old might write down the sacrificial affection of Christ, but maybe you can help me with that. <clears throat> Part of the enormity of that moment in the hospital, with Annie and her baby, is that while so much has already happened, there is so much to come. A lot of late nights, stress, even anxiety. Life will never be the same again because this new life has come into our lives. Paul is describing the same outlook in verses 8 and 9. His friends were not hired hands who had no concern for the believers. Whether they were paid or not, it made no difference. They were ready and willing to give up their very lives to make sure that Christ was formed in the Thessalonians. Now, we might ask of the text, does verse 8 mean that Paul shared his life with the Thessalonians because he felt affectionately desirous of them? Or to ask it another way, is his example to us limited only to those that we have a strong affection for? Well, yes and no. Yes, in that God is indeed sovereign over likes and dislikes. While corrupted by sin, it is still true that he's in charge of even these. So we enjoy certain people over others. That's a fact of life. But then again, Paul, the rest of Paul's life and ministry says no to this question. He was beaten, starved, and shipwrecked in order to preach to people that he sometimes didn't like at all. So then where does this love, where does this endearment, this, this sincere and deep affection come from? Well, once again, as if tethered to it, Paul stands at the foot of the cross as he writes... The person who truly understands the gospel will want to share his life. He wants and he volitionally decides to do it because in his joy, he understands how God has approached him or her to save. He understands that God has called him not just to save him from wrath, but to share with him his entire kingdom, to share with him his glory. And he has done it in the most humble and sacrificial way. He did it by becoming a humble man not holding on to his awesome place with the Father, but coming down. Coming down and enduring every temptation, enduring our despising, the horror of our sin, and loving us. Loving us to the point of death, even death on a cross. For God so loved the world does not say anything about the loveliness of the world, but how lavish is his grace and love to send his only Son in the face of all of our sin that whoever would believe in him then should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the more that we truly understand the gospel, 
the more that we will determine and desire to share our very lives with others, especially unbelievers. And why is this? Because increasingly, as we bask in His grace, as we understand His love for us, we will begin increasingly to possess an alien love that did not come from us for the most unlovely people in the world. The more you understand His calling to you, how it came to you, the more you will want to share it with the unlovable ones. And you'll be shocked by it. (laughs) You'll see it in yourself as if you were a third person and wonder where did this come from and then remember. I remember. So that beer-swilling neighbor that nobody likes whose horror movie house is a property value black hole for everybody else that you've been praying for and now you, well, you kind of like the guy. (laughs) You wonder, how is that happening? Nobody likes that guy, but I do. Where did that come from? Right. God's love causes genuine affection for unbelievers to sprout up in the most unlikely places. And this affection then spawns something very vital. In verse 8, some versions may have, your version may have the word delighted there in verse 8. And this is not incorrect, but it may obscure an emphasis of the word there, of the verse. The original word carries with it a sense of volitional choice. Paul and his friends willfully decided to share their lives. The word literally means thought it good. Based upon their affection for the Thessalonians, they thought it good to share their very lives with them. They looked at this affection that God was producing within them and willingly chose to give up their lives for them. Night or day, verse 9 says, they were there proclaiming the gospel of God with them. Like the mother who willingly gets up at 3 a.m. again to feed the baby, Paul and his friends were there, sacrificing time, sleep, energy, money, career. All of it was subordinated to the well-being of their gospel children. They wanted nothing more than to see them be born and thrive. So to sum this up, the more we truly understand the gospel, the more it will build in us a willful, deliberate desire to sacrifice for unbelievers. Especially when we get to know them better. Especially when we do. And we begin to inhale the noxious fumes of their sin. And we remember what God has done in our lives. And it takes us back to the cross yet again. And there from the foot of the cross, we see them and we see their need And the gentleness of Christ wells up within us. And from the gentleness of Christ, a sacrificial affection bubbles up. And we find ourselves doing alien things. Alien, sacrificial things that only a regenerated heart can do. Well, I ask you a question then. What does your family calendar say about your understanding of the gospel? What has been incited there by His grace to you? What's on there because He, being affectionately desirous of you, was ready and willing to share not only His gospel with you, but His own self, His own Son? What's, what's on the calendar that's been incited by that truth? What does your calendar say that you are willing to do in response to the gospel? What are you ready to do? What does your calendar say you're ready to do? What does your calendar say you're delighting to do? Perhaps over dinner today, uh, 
we need to do some gospel-driven, cross-centered erasing. (laughs) And we need to follow it up with prayer. With Bible-drenched prayer. Asking God to fill our calendars back up with cross-centered moments where we can lavishly, poignantly, pungently display the gospel in the life of unbelievers around us. God, give us Give us these opportunities. So then, gospel integrity means having humble gentleness, the humble gentleness of Christ and the sacrificial affection of Christ. The last intense characteristic of gospel integrity is simply this, and I I, I don't have a pithy way to say it, so I'm just going to say it this way. Uh, That uh, when it's just us Christians, not much changes. (laughs) When it's just us Christians... Not much, change, not much changes. That's really the point of verses 10 through 12. I'll read these. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul says that they were holy and blameless and upright in their conduct toward the believers. Toward the believers now. So he's subtly changed directions. For the last few verses, he's still been talking about his evangelistic ministry to them. But now he's changed, and now he's talking about his brief church pastoral ministry to them. And Paul's answer in verses 11 and 12 is this. Those things we kept talking about day in and day out at the tent-making shop, You yourselves know full well that once you were saved, we kept talking about the same things. Not much else changed. At every point in life, at every problem that we faced, the first and core solution was the gospel. Nothing changed. We didn't just sell you something and then hand you off to the church's member maintenance department. We kept at the gospel right up until the moment we were run out of town. Not much changed. I pray that we would be this kind of church. The differences, as I said, between verses 7 and 9 and 10 and 12 are so subtle because they were so subtle in Paul's life and ministry. Gospel integrity means that when a new believer comes into our fold, they receive the same story they heard before and they see the same story that they heard before. That what they were saved to in this church is what they are sanctified with. That it is always the gospel. Note the parallel in uh, one little detail in verses 7 and 12. In verse 7, in our evangelistic approach, we, we treated you gently like a mother with her own child. And now, we, as we continue to call you to a life worthy of God, we do so because He calls you into His own kingdom and glory. In either case, we're only to you what God has been to us. In every case, regardless of the audience, no matter what, it comes down to the gospel. The calling of God is irrevocable and it is always applicable. So Paul says, when we became a church and you still struggled with sin, we exhorted you to keep going. Remember God's calling on your life, Paul says. There is no going back to Egypt. So press on. Or, 
when you became bogged down with chasing after the old idol of security and money, we encouraged you to throw that off too, reminding you of the vast riches that you now and forever possess in His kingdom. You have all of God and all of His kingdom, and everything else is just a trinket. So then, there's the gospel call again. Or when you struggled with pride in your your newfound spirituality, Thessalonians, we charge you to remember that the only glory worth anything is this shared glory that God is so gracious to share with us. And He will do so one day when you are finally called home. In everything, Paul says, nothing changed. The gospel is still the centerpiece. Jesus Christ and Him crucified was still the center. So, in this familiar phrase, to walk in a manner worthy of God, Paul is echoing the Lord who said in Matthew 10, verse 38, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, when you were first saved, you heard a lot about dying to yourself in order to live, to be poor in spirit, to be in possession of the entire kingdom. And now as a church, integrity demands that nothing changes. That we would all be exhorting and encouraging and charging one another to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and into His glory. It began with the gospel. It keeps on with the gospel. As we exhort each other to keep dying, keep losing your life, because it is so worth it. It is so worth it for His calling upon you. Because you have the kingdom, you have His glory. Well, I just want to make one practical application here. This seems hardest for us with those that we know best. I would think especially those of you who may have, uh, have friends here, either in church or in this valley, deep, long-standing friendships, sometimes... Uh, I've had this happen before where our friendships can drift and the friend, we remain friends but we drift away from the gospel and our conversations begin to drift away to whatever we want to talk about that the Bible is rarely mentioned in our most closest friendships. This ought not be and it speaks to our integrity, to our lack of integrity. So brothers and sisters, to have integrity is to allow the gospel to infiltrate the crevices of your closest relationships. So if that's not present right now, I would like to make just one simple suggestion. Tonight, or the next time you get together, whether it's your best friend in church or your spouse, simply open the Bible together. Uh, Even if it's an unbeliever, (laughs) open the Bible together. Open the Bible to one of the Gospels and start reading. Start reading and talk about it. And don't make it any more complicated than that. Seek to have even your closest relationships centered around the Gospel itself. I hope and pray that as you do this, as we all do this, as we all watch the Lamb go to die, and then we watch Him live, that we will discover again His grace to us, His amazing love to us, and that it will be genuine refreshment to our souls, and that it will bring genuine integrity to ourselves, 
and to our church. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, to rest in your gospel, and to magnify your Son. Grant that we would increasingly, Lord, display him in the details of our lives. Pray that you would grant us this gentleness. Grant us this sacrificial affection. And grant, Lord, that, that we would have this depth of integrity, that the gospel is what drives us, the gospel is what founds us and moves us, whether we be in a room full of unbelievers or with our closest Christian friends, that the gospel would be the center and that your son would be magnified no matter where we are. Oh, Lord, glorify Yourself among us. Make Your name great among us. Make us fit vessels for Your glory and for the proclamation of Your name in this valley, in this church, in our friendships, and among the nations, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.